Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from uh, KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another evening, another Tuesday night, reflecting into the great Christian thinkers in history, church history. Uh, Tonight, we have the opportunity to get into the book of Acts. We're going to spend two weeks in Acts, and I'm going to be doing this with uh, John O'Hara, the uh, parishioner over from St. John the Baptist Catholic Church, who's been joining me. So, John, it is good to have you with me again tonight. Good to be here again, Joe. Thank you. So, John, last week we talked about the first volume of Luke's work, right? His gospel. And I, I duly note that because the book of Acts is his second volume. And as we talked about last week, it is to remember that it is this two-volume work from Luke uh, that continues the great narrative of salvation history. And and by that, um, what we intend to mean is that there are 14 books that if you were to read sequentially, you have the narrative of salvation history. Um, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, uh, you have Ezra and and Nehemiah, uh, Maccabees, and of course, uh, Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. So, uh, with those books, what you have are the foundation to better understand how God works in salvation history. And it's really important to note that because Luke picks up in the beginning of this work, John, as he ended his gospel. And so, we are made to see that this is the first church history book, if you will. You know, a lot of us get into church history and uh, we start in a time frame that is uh, post-Christ, post-book of the Acts of the Apostles. And, and, and it's really a shame because we, we miss a lot of history. And so this is why we've been spending so much time talking about what we've been talking about. And finally, in our ninth week, we now have the opportunity to talk about the book of Acts. And what does uh, Acts take up? It really takes up the expansion of uh, the church in the first century. It reveals to us that, uh, you know, what Christ began to do in the Gospel of Luke, he continues to do through his disciples and the Acts of the Apostles. And what we see in the Acts of the Apostles are those apostles evangelizing from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, you know, baptizing the faithful and calling for them to repent and believe in the good news, the Gospel message, the Evangelion. And now it's, what's interesting, John, is you can break down the book of Acts in three stages historically, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 5. That was when they were in Jerusalem from 33 to 35 AD. From Acts chapter 8, verse 5, through chapter 13, verse 1, you have the apostles in the Judea-Samaria area, 35 to 45 AD. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, all the way to the end, chapter 28, you have them evangelizing the people of God to the ends of the earth, and that roughly is 45 to 62 AD. So you have this kind of three-stage process of evangelizing. 
from 33 to 35, from 35 to 45, and from 45 to 62, moving from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. There, there seems to be a little doubt that Acts was written by Luke. Both the Gospel and Acts have the same beginning, the imprecation to Theophilus. And uh, Luke was not Jewish, and Aramaic or was not his language, it was Greek. Yes. And, uh, and he has excellent writing, beautiful writing I've heard, and uh, uh, he just is interested in getting a accurate historical situation going. Therefore, his, both his gospel and Acts are important to us. Well, very important, and certainly as you talk about, uh, you know, this, this person of Luke, yeah, it's to remember that he is a doctor, and uh, he's going to think systematically, and this is part of his as we talked last week, ordered account, you know, that he offers us this nice packaged account of just not uh, Christ, but also, you know, the, the age of the church in the first, uh, what, 30 years after the death of Christ. Um, and, and he does it beautifully. You know, he, he lays it out beautifully. Uh, virtually everybody in those early centuries agreed that this was Luke's writing, uh, Eusebius, I think it was St. Irenaeus and some others that I can't recall. So uh, this is a, you know, we, we, we have pretty authentic stuff here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And amen. I mean, there's, there's a reason why, why Luke, although not one of the original 12, is in the canon. Um, I mean, because, because of what he gives us. Um, so with that, what I thought we could do, John, is just jump into some of these verses. Uh, and... Where I thought we could start is with verse 6, 7, and 8 from chapter 1. I'll go ahead and read there. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so again, those are the three locations that we just talked about, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. You know, John, what's all this fuss of restoring the kingdom you know, to Israel? You know, Judaism hoped for a militant Messiah, that would remove them from the yoke of Roman oppression and essentially, John, reestablish this, this age-old kingdom of David. Um, but this is not what it was about. You know, God has come to establish not a kingdom of war horses and arrows, but as we just got done reading in our last uh, Sunday Mass, right, he comes in riding on a donkey. <laughs> and... Yeah, not the, the, the power isn't the power of an arrow, a bow and arrow, but the power of the Holy Spirit. It is essentially a kingdom of a table fellowship. You know, there's that wonderful verse, John, from Acts 2, uh, verse 42, that I, I think is one of my favorite verses in sacred scripture, John, that talks about the beauty of the early life of the church and its interpersonal communion. Chapter 2, verse 42 and they held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, 
and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were held together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor <clears throat> with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. 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 Again, this this kingdom of table fellowship, John, this kingdom of interpersonal communion. You know, the kingdom of God does not rule by might and military power. The kingdom of God rules and exists for evangelization and meekness of heart. This is what our Lord wanted to teach us when he came in riding on a donkey. Hosanna, they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm 118, John, which is a, which is a chant. A chant of what? A chant of salvation. So as they are there, they're crying out as he's coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is he, quoting this Psalm 118. Little did they know that the kingdom that he came to establish would be ratified in his blood, ratified in the gift of himself as he stains the wood of the cross. People were not ready for this, John. <laughs> People were not ready for this. And, and so here we have in the beginning of the book of Acts, this mission to go forth you know, we don't have the exact words here, we have them from Matthew, but we see these in continuity with one another, one another to baptize and to teach the nations, not to take your war horses and overtake, you know, this kingdom and that kingdom. No, this is not the kingdom that Christ came to establish. One of the things that amazes me about this first part of Acts is a lot of people joined immediately, and I don't think they joined because they expected a military king to lead them. They joined for spiritual reasons. And they stayed for spiritual reasons. And I have read that by the end of the first century, by about 100 AD, 10% of the Roman Empire was Christian. Yes. When it wasn't spread through military conquest, it was spread through the Word of God. Yeah. One by one, soul by soul, John, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, the Greek power, the dynamua of God, you know, dynamite, this explosion, you know, the idea is that the earth is quaking here. This is the stuff that's going on here in the opening verses. Now, it's interesting as we talk about this, John, there's a very important event that happens still yet in chapter 1 before we get into Pentecost of chapter 2. And I thought maybe we can read those verses and then offer up some important reflections as they relate to what is happening in the early church. And this takes us to chapter 1, uh, let's see here, verse 15. Ah, yes. In those days... Peter stood up among the brethren. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, 
and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms that this habitation become desolate and let there be no one to live in it, and his office let another take. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time of the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsab, Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was enrolled with the eleven apostles. Amen. Thanks for that reading, John. So what's going on here? Here you have in verse 20, in his office, let another take. The Greek word there, uh, John, for uh, office is episkopoi. Episkopoi. It refers to a position of oversight and was used in early Christianity for an Episcopal office or bishopric. In fact, if you were to go to the King James Version of the Bible, you don't actually see the word office. I believe you see the word bishopric. So this is where we get the word um, bishop. Now, it's, it's clear that Luke wants us to see the selection of Matthias reconstituting the Twelve, right? Uh, that ultimately the Twelve symbolized this new universal church, and that was very important in its uh, symbolic unity, if you will, this idea of reconstituting the Twelve, and moreover, that there's apostolic succession going on, right? There are some very important verses I want to go to, John, to highlight how this succession takes place. Now, we just had this verse, which helps us to better understand, but I want to go to Paul's epistle to Timothy. And in particular, I want to read 1 Timothy 4, verses, uh, let's see here, I'll go ahead and read verses 13 to 14. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance when the elders, the Greek for elders, by the way, is presbyteroi, it's where we get the word priest, laid their hands upon you. So what Paul is talking about here is that there was a grace conferred in the imposition of divinely qualified hands. I think it's 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul's talking about the ordained being stewards of the mysteries of God. Isn't Timothy a letter to a bishop? So this is kind of a handbook for bishops from Paul? To some extent, yes. Yeah, they are known as uh, his pastoral epistles. Um, And with that, we can go to also 1 Timothy 5, uh, verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor participate in another man's sins. Keep yourself pure. So there... Paul is talking to Timothy, 
and he's really exhorting him to be careful. Just don't lay hands on anyone. You have to be discerning. You have to be prayerful in, in what you're to do. And when they selected Matthias, they wanted someone who had been with Jesus the whole time, and both Justice and Matthias were. That was kind of their seminary training. Sure. And it's interesting, going back to Matthias, you know, they cast lots. You know, a lot of people think this as well, you know, this is just chance. Because casting lots was a selection where you had used marks, sticks, and, uh, and stones. But that was actually a way to discern God's will. You see this back in the Pentateuch. It is a means to discern God's will. And so I bring that into play here, John, because that certainly is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Be discerning. Be discerning in who you charge to be a steward to the mysteries of God. And we also have another verse here, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, we read, Hence, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Right? And once again, the laying on of hands, and that there's a power behind the imposition of hands. All very important here, John, as we talk about this. You know, in, in Acts 1, verse 8, when Christ sends them forth under the power of the Holy Spirit, so the apostles send others forth in the power of the Holy Spirit by way of the imposition of hands. And John, if you were to go to a priestly ordination today, what do you see? You see the laying on of hands. This is about the apostolic succession. Uh, I've been in a number of conversations about this with Catholics and, and non-Catholics, and these verses are very important because what you see here is the apostolic continuity taking place. And certainly Luke uh, wants to highlight this. Luke wants us to see this. This is why he gives us this opening chapter, clearly. So very important. Now, another uh, footnote, if you will, to this. This was a very fluid situation in the early church, bishop-priest. Really, there was no clear distinction in the early, early church. Um, it wasn't only until dioceses or regions grew that they needed to be, you know, to elect more bishops. And again, once again, you know, the word bishop means to oversee. Um, so now bishops were being installed to oversee regions, and this is what was happening in the first century. It just wasn't, say, clear initially, um, because these words are used interchangeably in the beginning. But in time, we do see the distinction between the two. So all very important. Yes. Now, John, as we talk about this, the book of Acts is probably known best because of what happens in the beginning of chapter 2. What happens in the beginning of chapter 2 is what we call the birthday of the church. Right? Yes. This, is, this is where it all shakes out. This is where Christ comes to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So maybe, John, if you can read us chapter 2, and we'll take it uh, maybe verses 1 to 10. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, 
devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound of the multitude, they came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them heard, heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with wine. <laughs> and then Peter stands up and uh, lets them know what's going on. You know, it's fascinating with this passage, John, here we have a kind of um, reversal of misfortune going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. You know, that misfortune that fell upon those events in early Genesis, that, you know, they had the inability to, to interpret one another. And these were people that wanted to build a kingdom on their own accord, right? But in the new church, there is a universal language being communicated by the Twelve, where they have the new ability to interpret one another, once again signifying the universality of the church, that this is a church that belongs to all people, and one that is governed by the fire of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting, when you look at the word uh, Holy Spirit seen throughout the Gospels and in Paul's letters, John, we have the word paraclete. You know, the paraclete is counselor, advocate, helper. I think what's most notable is that as it's a legal term, it evokes this image of Christ giving us an intercessor for the heavenly courtroom. Satan means accuser. Satan is constantly pointing his finger at you. It's your fault. Look at your sin. He's constantly accusing. And so we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is our defender. He's our advocate. He's our, I dare say, lawyer <laughs> in the courtroom of God where we are made to be strengthened in God. When you put the role of the Holy Spirit in the context of spiritual warfare, I think there's something illuminating there. And what the church wants us to see is that, yeah, we've been given this gift that we might enter deeper into our relationship with God and overcome the temptations of the adversary. And that indeed, uh, this is why we've been given this gift of the Holy Spirit. This is an author topic, but Father Groeschel explained paraclete. From paraclete, we get the word cleat, like in football, cleat. Mm. And that the Holy Spirit is trying to push us off the track, and the paraclete is trying to keep us on the way of Christ. And in that context, the word cleat, at least from paraclete, kind of made sense to me. Yeah, no, you know, I've never heard of that before, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, because that is what the Holy Spirit is doing. You know, insofar as the gift of the Holy Spirit being the birthday of the church, John, what are the principal roles of the Holy Spirit? Well, first, the Holy Spirit directs the missionary efforts of the church. The Holy Spirit is the protagonist of the church, 
And when we are steeped in this relationship with God in the Holy Spirit, we are sent forth. Second, the Holy Spirit guides this new church into truth, truth, the truth, the absolute truth of God. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the life, and the truth. And lastly, the Holy Spirit sanctifies the life of the church uh, in her sacraments. And so it is the gift of the Holy Spirit that we receive, certainly in baptism, that sets us apart. And this is what the apostles have been sent out to do. All throughout the book of Acts, right, after they've received this new power, this new fire, this new ardor, this new zeal, they go forth and they are baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's interesting. I say, in the name of the Father, it's actually baptized. If you go back into Matthew, it's baptized into the Father, Son, and Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. It's to remember that we are baptized into the one baptism of Christ, where we are to die to self. And so with, with this gift of the Holy Spirit, what we have here is the apostles and others going out and establishing this sacramental church. You mentioned that the Holy Spirit gives us mission, truth, and sanctity. Mary is mentioned once, the last time she met, is mentioned. And I was thinking of your older sister, mm. who was in the Carmelite monastery, prayer. And that is a huge part of the Holy And that's what Mary probably did for the remainder of her life, was she prayed for this new church her son founded. Amen. Amen. And that's a beautiful way to close, John. That, that, that word prayer, that ultimately there was Mary in the upper room bringing down the Holy Spirit among the apostles and all those who were in the upper room, and that she would then out from there leave in prayer, interceding on behalf of the church. Um, amen to that. Let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at jholljmj at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.